Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Oh my goodness, there is so much to talk about in this opening monologue, I barely know where to start. I guess the best place to begin is probably with the recent 70.3 World Championships in St. George, Utah. For me, this was my sixth Worlds for the 70.3, and it was kind of a weird lead-up given that I had qualified, geez, way back in 2019 at the Boulder 70.3. And at that time, the qualification was supposed to be for New Zealand, but this was, of course, deferred, cancelled, and now was taking place much, much closer to home. At any rate, I never thought that I'd be in St. George three times in four months, but there I was, this time with my wife, pulling into town and prepping for what was going to be another epic race. And it definitely was epic. If you haven't seen the article by Kelly O'Mara in Triathlete Magazine online talking about how this event was really very much like two races, I really suggest you look for it. I'm going to link to it in the show notes because it is well worth a read. At any rate, the thing that defined this day was most definitely the weather. Um, I started as one of the later age groups amongst the men, but got through the swim fine and was about halfway through the bike when we got walloped with I can only with what I can only describe was a severe, almost like supercell kind of thunderstorm. Uh, out of nowhere, we just got hit with 30 to 40 mile an hour winds coming from the side, uh, rain, hail, the works just pounding us. And it rapidly became evident that this was not a tenable situation. In fact, it was quite dangerous. And so personally, I decided pretty much right then and there, that I had other things that I needed to be concerned about. Uh, Specifically, staying upright, not crashing, not dying. And, uh, you know, I've got Ironman Mency coming up in a couple of weeks, and I just felt like continuing to actually race through that kind of adverse conditions was not a risk that I was willing to take. Now, there were a lot of guys around me who didn't feel the same way and were powering on through, and good for them, because uh, I was very impressed that they were able to keep control of their bikes and actually maintain pretty good speeds. Me personally... I just didn't feel comfortable and I wasn't willing to do that, which is unfortunate. And I want to say, I think demonstrates how far I've come being in this sport because it took me a long time to get myself to the point that I can qualify for Worlds and can actually show up to an event like this and feel like I have the potential to be in the top 20, maybe even the top 10. And when this weather hits, I didn't do the irrational thing, which was to keep racing. I actually was able to have the perspective that this was a one day event that wasn't going to define me as a triathlete or as an individual and preferred that I be safe and get out of this race in one piece. And so rather than pushing through and taking risks that I wasn't comfortable with, I just soft pedaled for about 15, 20 minutes. I lost a lot of time. It cost me in the end, but I still had a good day because I was able to continue riding once the storm had passed, eventually got onto the run and had a pretty solid run and moved my way up to a very respectable finish. So I think for me, the take-home lesson was it's okay given the circumstances to forego some of your goals if it means that you're not risking the kinds of injuries that are going to you know, prevent you from getting the kinds of goals you have later on. So I think that um, a lot of people made that same decision. As I said, some others didn't, and that's okay. 
because with the race returning next October, it's going to be interesting to see how it compares. I don't know if the course is going to be the same, but um, I, for one, would be very interested in going back and challenging uh, taking on this course one more time, uh, especially if the course is the same and in a better weather. Now, uh, that will only happen, of course, if I'm not headed to Kona because I have a really good day in Muncie in uh, about a week's time, which is a good segue to the second item for discussion, and that's all of the machinations around the Ironman World Championships. As I'm recording this, uh, just earlier today, Ironman made the announcement that after several deferrals, the most recent being to February of 2022, the 2020 Ironman World Championships, which were canceled, the 2021 Ironman World Championships, which were deferred, have now been officially moved to St. George, Utah. The Ironman event, which was already scheduled for May of uh, 2022, will now become the Ironman World Championship, which is a kind of an interesting development since something like 2,000 athletes had already signed up without necessarily qualifying for that event and have now been given the option to stay in the event, which is now a world championship. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see what happens as age group athletes who have not qualified may win their age group. Will they be determined to be the world champion in that year? Uh, so I'm kind of interested to see. The other thing that's happened is 2022 Kona race has been split into two. There will be a women's event on the Thursday in October, and the same week on the Saturday, there will be a men's event. Although in order to even things out, some men's age groups will race with the women on the Thursday. It's not clear which age groups. I'm assuming it's going to be some of the older age groups that are a little bit slower and therefore won't compete with the uh, women pros who will be out there, but that's all to be determined. Now, all of this brings to mind uh, a piece that I mentioned uh, back here during the um, early days of the pandemic when Kona was first canceled in 2020. I brought up the idea that maybe it was time for Ironman to explore different locations for the Ironman World Championship. And I said this because it would allow for Ironman to expand the field and it would allow for Ironman to have a two-day event. Well, it seems that in 2022, Ironman is actually going to be able to experiment with both of these possibilities. They'll have a new location in St. George where they will trial a world championship outside of Kona and see how that goes over, both with the pros as well as with uh, age groupers who participate. And then they'll be able to test a two-day event in Kona. How will that work in Hawaii? Will there be enough accommodations? Because I know when I went to Kona one time, it was hard enough to find accommodations for a one-day event. Now that you've doubled the number of athletes, how hard is that going to be uh, to find places to stay? Um, in addition, will the people of Kona accept having the race being more, you know, more inconvenient for them? I know that uh, I encountered a lot of hostility from people in Kona during race week. And if now they're inconvenienced on two days instead of just one, is that going to make things even worse? So I think what Ironman is going to do is take a look at this experiment in 2022 and make a decision. Are they going to rotate the race out of Kona or are they going to try and have a two-day event in Kona proper and carry that forward? So a lot of interesting things to be determined and I guess we'll know a lot more by the end of next year and by probably this time next year we'll have a much better sense of how things are going to go. And finally, I have to briefly mention the retirement from the triathlon space of Triathlon Terran. 
And that's really all I'm going to say about it. As you know, I've never really been a fan, and while I wish him well, I fear that his announced shift to promoting his alternative health views more vigorously is not really going to come to any good. I guess time is going to tell, and we'll see what he makes do with his very largely followed podcast and blogging. On the show today, I'm going to continue the theme of how time of day can affect triathletes' performance by examining the impact of the semi-annual changing of the clocks for daylight savings time. Since we're officially into fall and the days are unfortunately unfortunately noticeably shorter and cooler, the shifting of the clocks back to standard time is just a short, a short few weeks away. I was interested to learn that for years now, researchers have known about important health effects of this change, specifically in the spring, that make the continued adherence to this time shift uh, kind of questionable and honestly, maybe a little alarming. And yet still, here we are preparing to do it yet again. So what are those risks, and should we as triathletes be concerned? And since we're talking about time shifts, how do larger shifts, such as those associated with travel across numerous time zones, impact performance? Now, it's true, many of us haven't really been able to travel for destination races for two years now, but hopefully that's going to change soon and we'll get back to doing that kind of long-term travel that takes us across various time zones. Well, I'm going to look at the science on all of this and that's coming up in just a short bit. Later on, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with the great Mark Allen. Mark is, of course, the six-time Ironman world champion and master coach who's an icon in our sport and he graciously joined me for a conversation on many things relevant to the sport today. Best of all, if you enjoy that, Mark did an extra segment that I've made available to all of my Patreon subscriber over at my site, patreon.com forward slash Podcast. For the price of about a cup of coffee per month, you can get access to this and all kinds of other interesting interviews available only to my supporters. So visit that site today and become a supporter so that you can get access to the new Mark Allen bonus segment, as well as to all the other bonus content that's up there right now. And that URL again is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And as always, thanks in advance just for considering. As much as I hate to admit it, autumn has arrived for us here in the Northern Hemisphere. I think it's been pretty much since the summer solstice in June that I've been noticing the gradually shortening hours of daylight and trying as best as I can to ignore the pictures coming from my friends in the Southern Hemisphere of their burgeoning spring. That's true, I am from Canada, very much a winter sports person, but I gotta tell you, as I've aged, my affinity for summer has grown pretty much continuously, and I now find myself pining for the lovely warm evenings that are so common around Denver for most of the year, but are now, unfortunately, no more than a memory as we inch closer and closer to the dark and foreboding cold of winter. Okay, maybe a little overdramatic, but that's kind of where I'm at right now. Anyways, as fall has arrived, This often brings up a semi-annual conversation related to the changing of the clocks that we do twice a year. When it was first proposed way back in 1784 by none other than Benjamin Franklin, his thought at the time was that if we shifted the clocks forward in summer, we'd have more hours of daylight during our waking hours and be able to save candles. 
Well, since that time, various other scientists and politicians have dallied with the idea, and it was always with that kind of similar notion that if we just aligned our time to the longer days, this would result in less energy use in one form or another. Well, in 1916, both Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire became the first countries to implement the system formally, and it's been used off and on by various nations around the world since then. But during the energy crisis of the 1970s, the use of, of daylight savings time became much more widespread, and in fact, in North America anyways, pretty much permanent. But... Along the way, there have been many who've questioned this practice and really wonder if it should be continued. Farmers, for instance, have always hated it, as the animals they work with don't really care what time the clock says, they just go by where the sun is in the sky. And various jurisdictions in larger countries like the United States and Canada have also taken issue with the time change, since doing so can actually put their local areas more out of sync with the sun rather than more in sync with it by virtue of where they lie geographically within their time zone. For example, New York City, which is pretty far east in the eastern time zone, actually gets moved too far ahead when we move the clocks forward in the spring, while other cities in the far west of their time zones don't get moved far enough. More importantly, though, numerous studies have demonstrated that the energy savings that were originally expected with the changing of the clocks have never really come to pass, making the original rationale for the whole thing kind of dubious and really kind of making the point moot. For athletes, there are also some other pretty important issues that are raised by the time shift, and it dovetails with the conversation of another kind of time shifting that's related specifically to travel. So what then are the health and safety implications for triathletes associated with the implementation of daylight savings time and the switch back to standard time in the fall? And how does this inform our understanding of the effects of travel across time zones and the associated impact on athletic performance? Well, let's first consider the impacts associated with just that minimal one-hour shift in the clocks that we go through every spring and then again in the fall. Now, if the time zone shift was no big deal and had no important effects on people, then I wouldn't be discussing it. But the fact of the matter is that it actually does. Now, you'll recall from the last episode of this podcast in my discussion of the circadian effects on performance that we are all exquisitely sensitive to time of day fluctuations in performance. And no doubt, you're all also acutely aware of how sleep quality and quantity also play a very important role in your own athletic performance. Well, that little one-hour time change that we go through, moving the clocks into daylight savings time and then back to standard, it actually has a pretty outsized effect in causing some pretty dramatic impacts on our internal biological clocks. Now, while common sense would suggest that in the spring, with the clocks moving forward, we all lose an hour of sleep, and that in the fall, when they move back, we actually gain an hour, research has shown that this isn't the case, and I'm sure most of you can probably attest to that fact. Certainly in the fall, I don't remember ever actually gaining an hour of sleep. It, you know, you always think you're going to, but you never actually do. In the spring, it turns out, sleep is pretty seriously disordered, often for as long as five days from the small change in time. While in the fall, it's a much quicker recovery to normal sleep patterns, but the notion that people gain an hour of sleep, as I said just before, is really a complete fallacy. And that alteration in the sleep cycles in the spring turns out to have some pretty significant health impacts. Research has shown that in the week following the time change, the risk of heart attacks is significantly higher than in the week before. 
And this is felt to be entirely attributable to the alterations in sleep that accompany that spring forward. Now, other studies have shown increased risks of stroke, vascular problems, and even clotting issues within the legs and lungs as well, all because of that one measly one-hour time change. Now, this is pretty amazing stuff and makes me wonder why in the world have we stayed with this if, in fact, there's no real benefits to the energy consumption and there's these very real adverse health effects. Well, it turns out politicians and scientists, for that matter, have also put forward another rationale to justify the use of daylight savings time. And in this case, it has nothing to do with energy consumption, but rather a form of energy use, and that is motor vehicles. Specifically, the use of daylight savings time has been posited to reduce motor vehicle collisions. Now, the reason for this is because people have long known that motor vehicle collisions are much more common in the evening and especially in the dark. By using daylight savings time to prolong the hours of daylight further into the evening, it was suggested that the roads would be safer during those otherwise darker and dangerous periods. Now, interestingly, the dark has less of an effect on driving conditions in the morning because, it turns out, people are much more awake and the fatigue from a long day at work or whatever else people are doing during the day tends to play much less of a role. Now, several studies have looked at this question. And surprisingly, here again, where the rationale seems to make a lot of sense, there isn't a whole lot of compelling data to support it. Among a large number of observational studies looking at road safety around the spring switch to daylight savings time, the data has actually been pretty inconsistent, with some studies showing a decrease in collisions, some showing an increase, and nearly half of the studies showing no change at all. Interestingly, in those studies that did show an increase in collisions, the researchers there were able to attribute the increase to disordered sleep patterns, but this finding simply did not persist across all the other studies. And no effects on collisions were seen with the time change in the fall. Now, one finding that really piqued my interest came from a group of nine studies that looked at the impact of daylight savings time on different types of road users, specifically users in cars versus pedestrians versus cyclists. Now, in those studies, there were no changes in the frequencies of collisions for cars. However, there were pretty significant and dramatic decreases in incidents involving both pedestrians and cyclists. One of the studies reported a 36% decrease in casualties among pedestrians and an 11% reduction for cyclists, no doubt attributed to improved visibility because of the prolongation of daylight hours when cyclists and pedestrians were out on the roads. So clearly, this is a pretty good thing. But still, the abundance of evidence suggests that the daylight savings time change is unhealthy for the most part and unsustainable. But for whatever reason, there remains no real political will to abandon it. This hasn't stopped people from trying to get a change, though. A group of scientists collated all of the data that I've talked about, as well as some other, on this subject and published a paper in 2019 outlining their argument for abolishing the practice of daylight savings times. And yet, here we are, just six weeks or so away from the fall back to standard time, getting ready to do it once again. Now, the second part of the initial question that I had at the beginning of this segment relates to travel and how that impacts athletic performance. Now, clearly, while the pandemic has diminished the ability for many to travel to races abroad, we know that eventually we're going to get back to that. And anyone who has traveled for a race before is going to be quite familiar with the effects that jet lag can have on their performance if they don't give themselves ample time to recover before their event. 
Well, similar to what we've seen with the daylight savings time one-hour change, jet lag results when we phase shift our biologic clocks away from the sun clock. The time that it takes for our circadian rhythms to adjust to the new environment is the time that we're going to feel off and experience the symptoms of jet lag. Now, how bad those symptoms will be depend a little bit on the individual, but more than that, it also depends on how many time zones are traveled and in which direction. Traveling west causes a phase shift that tends to be easier for our bodies to compensate for than traveling east, and research has shown that we recover anywhere from a third to two-thirds quicker when traveling in a westerly direction than if we travel east. Now, the symptoms of jet lag are sleep disturbance, mood disturbance, gastrointestinal effects, and even hormonal changes. And the effects on athletic performance come about mainly as a result of these symptoms, but also because of the shift in the circadian period of internal optimal performance away from external conditions at the destination. In other words, your internal clock has you performing your athletic best at a time that has you fast asleep at your destination. Now, the amount of time that it takes to adapt to a new time zone is on average one day per time zone traveled. So if you travel to a place that has a time zone four hours ahead of your home, it would take on average about four days to adapt to that new time zone. And this is obviously helpful in planning travel for races as you want to be sure that you give yourself time to adapt and be able to perform your best at your event. Now, given that it can take so long to adapt to a new time zone, depending on how far you've traveled, it becomes a realistic question to ask whether or not that even makes sense in some circumstances. For example, if you're traveling to a destination race but only staying a short time, it might actually make sense to remain on your home time. This is especially true if you've only moved forward or back by three, maybe four or fewer hours. And if you have more time, then clearly adapting is going to make sense. Now, many people have looked for ways to try and speed the adaptive period, and there are studies to show that, in fact, some of the proposed remedies can be effective in this regard. First, let's dispense with those things that have been shown not to work, and this includes things like barbiturates, benzodiazepines, and steroids. But more interesting to me, and to you, I'm sure, are those things that have been shown to work, and this includes a widely available over-the-counter medication called melatonin. Now, melatonin is a naturally occurring hormone that's secreted in the evening that helps with setting our biological clock to nighttime and to help us sleep. Well, it turns out that taking 5 milligrams of melatonin for 4 days after arriving at a new time zone in the evening has been shown to speed adaptation and help shift our circadian rhythm more quickly. How much more quickly is not totally clear, but in many of the studies and in the meta-analyses that have looked at this, there's no question that there is a statistically and probably clinically significant improvement in how long it takes to adapt to new time zones. Another treatment that has shown some promise is light therapy. Using bright light therapy in the early morning can also help phase shift our biological clock more quickly than otherwise would be possible. And the bonus here is that this doesn't have to be done with any fancy lights that you wear as glasses or hold up to your face in any way. You can actually just use the light of the sun to accomplish this. Dietary changes also have been suggested as another way to speed phase shifts, but the research in this regard has been more inconclusive, and to this point, there's probably no real accepted way that you can eat certain foods and expect to get any kinds of gains in this regard.
Exercise too has been suggested as a helpful means of improving the time to adaptation to a new time zone. And again, the research here is inconclusive, but if you're traveling to an event and you're going to be exercising anyways, it certainly makes sense to do this early in the day and leverage any possible ability that this has to help phase shift you into the new time zone more quickly than would otherwise be possible. Now, the last thing to consider, and this is truthfully the most important, is pre-adapting. And that means starting the process of shifting to your new time zone before you even leave home. If you have the ability to shift your clock to destination time before you leave, you can begin the process of adapting before you even travel. The issue here, though, is that you have to be really rigorous about how you do things, specifically controlling things like light exposure and other social cues such as meals or work that can make your body see through the roost that you're trying to pull on it in order to fool your internal clock into being in a different time zone. But if you're diligent and you can pull this off, this is a really effective way of starting the adaptation process early and facilitating that adaptation once you get to where you're going. Well, do you have a question about any of the things I've talked about in this segment, or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future segment? Well, email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by LifeSport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, LifeSport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider Life Sport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at lifesportcoaching.com. After competing and losing in the Ironman Triathlon World Championships in his first six attempts, Mark Allen emerged victorious in 1989, winning the most difficult one-day sporting event in the world. It would be the first of his six Ironman World Championship victories for uh, Mark, the last coming in 1995 at age 37, making him the oldest champion ever at that time. He also excelled at the Olympic distance, winning the sport's inaugural Olympic distance world championships in 1989 in Avignon, France. He went undefeated in 10 trips to the Nice International Triathlon, and from 1988 to 1990, he put together a winning streak of 21 consecutive Mm -hmm. victories. Mark was named Triathlete of the Year six times by Triathlete Magazine, and in 1997, Outside Magazine tabbed him the world's fittest man. His most recent sports accolade came in November of 2012 when he was voted the greatest endurance athlete of all time in a worldwide poll conducted by ESPN. Well, since retiring from competition, Mark has become a sought-after motivational speaker, an internationally acclaimed triathlon coach, and an award-winning author, along with Brant Secunda, for their groundbreaking book, Fit Soul, Fit Body, Nine Keys to a Healthier, Happier You. And his most recent book, The Art of Competition, was released in August of 2014, and it's a -a one-of-a-kind book of quotes and thoughts on competition born out of the heat of Ironman racing. And I will include a link where you can find more about all of those publications. But for now, I can also tell you that Mark is a much sought-after podcast guest, and I'm excited to have him here on the TriDoc podcast today. Thank you so much for joining me, Mark, uh, on the podcast. Yeah, what a what a resume I got to live up to. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I should tell you that you know I got into the sport 
I guess pretty late. I mean, I, after my medical training and uh, residency and everything else, uh, found myself introduced to triathlon um, mid nineties uh, at a time when uh, you, you were uh, sort of at the peak of your career. And uh, I knew nothing about triathlon except for uh, Ironman uh, Hawaii. And so um, you have been there throughout my entire career coming into the sport. And uh, when I finally got to uh, Kona myself, there you were. <laughs> and uh, I didn't get to meet you at that time. So it's a real honor and a pleasure to speak with you uh, on the podcast today. Uh, I am really interested and fascinated. Um, you know, I, I, watching, I have the book uh, from the first 25 years of Ironman, uh, reading through uh, those races, uh, you, you know, you alluded it to it in the bio that you sent to me about losing today, you know, to Dave six times in a row. And how did you keep coming back? I mean, I, I could tell you, you know, I, I just had an experience at the Boulder 70.3 where I got bumped off the podium by less than a second. And you know, mentally, emotionally, that's that's something that's really hard to kind of come back from. And and here you were at the pinnacle of the sport six times in a row, second place. How did you continue to find that motivation to come back and and keep going and 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 to, until you finally you know reach the top? Well, the the first few where I did not win, they were sort of easy to come back from because I knew that I was on an upward trajectory and that I was, I was learning, I was gaining more experience. I was understanding what that really meant to, to race the Ironman in Hawaii, which is so different than any other Ironman on the planet. It's just more complex. It's um, complicated. It's unpredictable. And even with the best of training as, as everybody knows, you can have a day where you're reduced to walking on the marathon. And if you're, if you're walking the marathon, you are not going to win that freaking thing. So anyway, um, the first, I would say three times that I was there, I really felt like, okay, you know, I have a chance to win because I had seen how I had stacked up against the other guys and other events around the world. And I had been able to beat pretty much everybody. Um, but then it started to get really hard. You know, the, the fourth time that I went and the fifth time that I went and the sixth time that I went and seeing this pattern just unfold over and over and over where something went wrong, either with my equipment or my body or both, or just having a, a complete mental meltdown in it, <clears throat> being in the lead, being, having a, you know, what looked like a comfortable gap on the biggest threat, Dave Scott, and still not being able to pull, pull it off. It was really hard, you know, to, when I, when I would go home after those, you know, I'll call them losses because there were a number of years there where I really felt like, okay, I've got it together this year. I've got the training dialed in now and I've got the experience and I still came up short. So it was, <clears throat> it wasn't like I went home and went, oh, gee, second place. That was really good. You know, I, I was devastated when you feel like you are ready for that breakthrough moment that you've done the work and you've prepared properly and you still fall short it's tough. And at some point, um, you know, and I went through this at some point you might have to just go, well, maybe I'm not cut out for this race. Maybe it's just not in the cards for me. Maybe I'm just not good enough in the heat, or maybe it's something about the big Island itself. I can't, I can't find my mojo here. You know, I can find it other places in Nice, France and Australia, you know, over in Europe, but in Hawaii, it was really, really hard. And I love Hawaii. 
but I hated racing there in those first years. And, you know, if you, if you hate racing where you're going to be at, it's hard to have that great breakthrough positive performance. And so how did I, how did I regroup and come back? It, it took time every year. And, and the more years that I raced there, the longer it took to get distance from the race and ask myself, okay, you know, sure. I'm disappointed. I thought I was ready, but what can I do differently to be better prepared the next time? And after the sixth one, I was like, you know what? I'm done. There's no way I can do this. I, I'm, I'm beating my head against a wall that is just going to defeat me every time I go out there. And it wasn't satisfying because I, I knew that my best race hadn't come out, but I didn't know if it would, if my best race that I had in my mind was even possible. And so in 1989, when I started the year, I actually wasn't going to go back to Kona. I had written it off my calendar, but about, I don't know, two weeks into training, there was like this dull, soft whisper and big island going, come back, come back. You, you need to come back. And I was just like, I, I knew, I knew that I had to go back. And I thought, I, I need to find a different reason to go there though, because I had been trying to win and I had been trying to win by emulating or imitating Dave Scott. You know, he's, when he raced at other races around the world, he looked like just all the rest of the top competitors, tough fit, but nothing extraordinary. When, when he got off that plane in Kona, you could see it was like, he became the Hulk, you know, the superhero. He was like pumped up and, and totally intimidating to even look at the guy. And so, and, and he, he really likes to control the race, to control the pace, the, you know, the timing of everything to be right in the thick of what's going on. And, um, so I was trying to be like that. I was trying to be pumped up on the big Island. I was trying to control the pace, control the race. And in that reflective moment in, in the winter of 1989, when I really did have now it's whatever, three months or four months after Kona, my sixth time there, my sixth, sixth disappointment. And, uh, I was just reflecting and I thought, you know, the, race, the best races that I've had in other places are when I don't try to control what goes on. I just am there ready to respond on how the day unfolds. And that's a very different way to approach the event because it takes all the pressure off having to be in charge of the thing. You know, all you have to do is just come up with the answers to the challenges of the day. And that's kind of exciting because you're exploring how you're going to have your best race in the moment on that day. So that was one shift in my focus. And then the second real shift, though, was that I said, yeah, you know what? There is only going to be one person that crosses that line in first place. I may never be that person, but I owe that the Big Island another chance to go back and try to have the best race that I can. First, second, third, I don't care. I'm going to go there this year. I'm going to race it start to finish. I'm going to race it strong. I'm going to race it on my terms. In, in other words, just see how the day is unfolding and figure it out on the day. And if I get fifth, 10th and have my best race, I'm good to go. And so when I was floating in Kailua Bay that year in 1989, um, I had this calm and this peace and this 
feeling of looking around at the big island, not as this intimidating environment, but as this incredibly beautiful natural house. Like I had, I was a guest in the big island's house and I was floating there and I was just asking that I could have, just have my best race. And it was actually, I think the first year that I, I noticed the sunrise coming up over, uh, you know, the, the Eastern volcanoes right there and noticing how beautiful the water was and just seeing all the other top competitors sort of doing their frantic last second sort of warm up with their arms and all this stuff. And I was just like, what are you guys so worried about? You know, it was a whole different feeling. And, uh, that, so that's how the day started. And it just unfolded very different than any of the other ones. It was, as you know, side by side with Dave Scott for over eight hours of, of competition. And that was, that was a real treat. Let me tell you. Yeah. I, I love that shift in focus. Uh, you know, so much of, especially Ironman, I mean, you know, so much of triathlon, but really Ironman is a mental game. And what you just described, I think is so uh, spot on and really an eloquent way of kind of describing how a shift in focus and a shift in mental preparation and mental really attitude at the start can really change the day. Uh, I, I find there's so much nervous energy around the start of an Ironman. And in my own personal experience, my best days have come when I've showed up either you know, feeling like I'm not going to do well. And so therefore I don't put any pressure on myself and I end up doing really well, or just a totally at peace because I'm so confident in all of my training. And then I'm just sort of sitting there at the start and watching all this nervous energy around me and thinking to myself, gosh, I'm not nervous. I actually feel pretty good. And I, I, I that completely resonates with me. And of course I, I'm never going to win these things, but you know, I do have my best days. And I think that it, it's such a, um, a revelation to hear someone at your level say the same thing that the mental game doesn't have to be all about, you know, high intensity thought focus, but rather just being at peace. And I, I think I really love that. I really love the appreciation of the sunset. And because I'll tell you, I've been to Kona just once so far. I'm really hoping to get back. And I went there purely with the, um, intent of enjoying the experience because I really didn't know if I'd ever get back again. And I felt like you did. I was just in the water, watching the sunset, watching the sunrise and just looking around and enjoying the moment. And I just carried that through the whole day and just really appreciated every moment of the race. And so it's really interesting to hear it coming from you, someone who was really at the pinnacle. I'm curious, you know, there were a couple of things you mentioned in there and I want to get back to both of them. One of them was this notion that it took, you know, you felt like you just couldn't do well on the big island. And we see that over and over again. There are many pros that do extremely well at Ironman, but then they get to Hawaii and they can't do it for one reason or another. You know, sometimes it's the environmental conditions. Sometimes it's just the level of competition. What do you think it is about an individual athlete that makes them best suited to do well in Kona when they've done well everywhere else? Well, some of it is just how you're, how you're put together. You know, some people, are naturally going to be better in heat, heat and humidity than other athletes. And, you know, you can, you can certainly adapt to that and, and train for it, but I think there's kind of a, a, an upper limit. Like for me, as an example, I was really good at races that were hot. I was not good at races that were cold. When I, I did a number of events in Germany during my career and I never really had a good race there. And then I finally, I realized that every single one of those races, it was cool. It was in like in the mid sixties, sometimes it would be drizzling and my body just doesn't work at, the, at those temperatures. So there's a, you know, there's a, 
kind of a genetic component to it. But beyond that, I think um, a lot of it really is how you mesh with the, with the island. It's a it's a very powerful place. It's a you know you can feel it when you get off of the plane, and it's it's sort of like um, it's like a truth serum in the sense of it's asking you to just face reality. And if if you try to push that reality away, like reality meaning that yes, you do have strength, but at the same time you have weaknesses and you have to embrace all of it as, as a complete package. You can't just show up and go, yeah, I'm a badass <laughs> most of the time. You know, you, you got to just say, yeah, I'm really good most of the time, but I also have these moments where I doubt myself in the middle of the race, where I want to quit, where my legs are killing me. And I don't think I can keep going where I start out in the swim and I'm like, what am I doing here again? That kind of feeling. And if you just embrace that, then it's sort of like those, those negative thoughts sort of wash in and then they wash out and they don't have, they don't have a hold on, on your physical body or your ability to just stay engaged in, in what's going on. Some athletes can't do that. They want to go there and be pumped up. They want Ironman Hawaii to feel like Ironman Switzerland or, or Ironman, you know, wherever, and it's not going to feel the same. Um, and so another element I think is judging how you're doing in Kona based on the experience of Kona, not against another experience that you had in a different Ironman. And that's, that's, you know, for top pros all the way down through every age grouper, you know, you qualify at a race that probably in many ways doesn't have the same demands on you that Kona does. And you get to Kona and you might be thinking you're having the worst Ironman in your life when in reality you're having the best Ironman Hawaii that you could possibly have. And so, you know, just those are, those are a few of the factors. And then also there's that thing of you go there and you feel like, Oh my God, I'm at the Ironman in Hawaii. And this is like so much pressure. I can't handle it. You know? And so you just kind of can get that freak out. And there's, there's actually an advantage to having a certain level of uh, anticipation or tension or, nervousness because that is indeed what elevates you up from a hard training day into doing something incredible that you could never do on your own. Right. But you got to find that sweet spot where you have some of that nervousness, but at the same time you, you, you temper it so that you're not just oozing and losing all this energy that you need to really be holding in here. And that was something that I felt like I was pretty, pretty good at was just, minimizing the outflow of energy prior to the race and soaking in as much into my in, internal being as possible. Because I knew, knew that for eight hours, I was going to have to draw on every ounce of energy and uh, commitment that I had to just staying with the race, no matter how, how it un unfolded. Yeah. So many excellent points there. I, you know, I, I remember looking at the the course and thinking to myself, gosh, the course just doesn't look that difficult it, it, compared to some of the other Ironmans out there. And it's not, it, I mean, just on paper, it shouldn't be as hard as it is, but of course there's so much else that goes into it. And I think you just, uh, you just really nicely put, uh, put a nice frame on all of those things. Um, 
you know, the other thing you mentioned initially in, in your first answer was that uh, you had tremendous success at different distances. You did really well in Olympic uh, distance, international distance, which is not something we traditionally see. Uh, usually people will focus on one and then move to the other and can't necessarily go back and forth. What, what do you attribute your success to being able to go hard at the sprint or not sprint, but the Olympic distance and still have success at Ironman? We, we don't see that today as much. Uh, where do you, why do you, do you think you had so great success doing that yeah like the year that i won the itu world championship 1989 same year that i won uh kona for the first time so i was i was prepared to be at the top of the heap in the olympic distance and the ironman distance in the same year but they weren't exactly at the same time you know and, and so i think one of the reasons that i did well in both short and long is that when i was competing there weren't as many races. And so if you wanted to put a full race calendar together, you had to do some short distance, you had to do some long distance and everybody, your sponsors, everybody expected that you're going to be performing at the top at both of those distances. Nowadays, there's so much specialization that I don't think anybody would expect, let's say an ITU athlete uh, to come in, come in off their, their championship and a few months later go win Kona. Um, but back when I was racing, there was just this expectation that that was possible. And so I was sort of like, oh, okay, well, let's go see if we can do it. And mm -hmm. I did it. Karen Smyers is, is another one who did that during her career. She, she won, um, Kona and the ITU world championship in the same year. She did it in the reverse order. She raced in Kona in October. And then the ITU world championship that year was in November, I think in Mexico. And she, she won that. So it's not something that happens very often. Although there are those who have done well at the Olympic distance and then transitioned up, you know, look at Jan Frodeno gold medalist, and now he's multi-time Ironman world champion. So he's, he's shown that clearly it's possible in the same year. It's a lot harder though. Yeah, well, we're going to see it this year, right? With uh, at least the male uh, Olympic gold medalist is going to be going to Kona. We'll see if uh, uh, Flora Duffy takes it up as well. It'll be interesting. Um, I'm curious, you know, as a pro, we often see in a lot of professional sports that uh, pros stay on too long. Uh, they stay well past their prime and to a period of decline that really kind of colors their uh, their greatness. And you didn't do that. Dave didn't do that. A lot of the female pros uh, who are considered some of the greats also, they retired at a time when they were at the top of their game. And I'm curious, how did you know when it was right, the, that it was the right time to say, you know what, I'm, I've, I've accomplished everything I wanted to do. It's, it's time to go. Well, I think that perspective started pretty early in my career in the sense that I did a lot of training with um, top athletes in cycling, in running. I lived in Boulder, Colorado and trained there quite a bit and during my career. And I had seen, you know, guys and gals who were at the very top of their sport push it too many years and all of a sudden they're injured or they're burned out and they, you know, they're, they're starting to slide down at that other side and they just want one more good race and then they'll be able to retire happy. Well, they should have done it up here, right? And so... Uh, my overarching goal in knowing when to retire was I want to retire from competition, uninjured, healthy, and not burned out because I'd seen what happens if you do it too many years and you push it too hard for too, too long. 
And so when I was getting toward the end around 1995, going into my final Ironman, I, I, there was a couple of things happening. One, I, I could tell that if I raced hard another couple more years that I would pay, probably pay a price for the rest of my life. And it's like, you know what? I hope to live to be 60, 70, 80, whatever I can get and to be able to be active and healthy and not have my body broken down for all of those years that are coming after I'm retiring. You know, I'm 37. So, uh, and, and, and then also going into Kona in 1995, I also knew that I had pulled every little trick out of my bag of things that I wanted to try to get just that little bit better. And so I knew that there was absolutely nothing more I could do in a future year to have a better Ironman performance than I was going to put together in 1995. And so it was kind of like a convergence of everything, just like, this is it. This is so clear for me. It's going to be it. And uh, one thing that that <laughs> I, I was sponsored by Nike at the time, and uh, I had asked some folks at Nike, what have you seen is the most difficult thing for, for a world-class athlete to manage or deal with when they quit. And they said, without a doubt, the thing that's the most difficult is that you have been one of the best, if not the best in the world. And whatever you do next, at least when you start out, you are not going to be the best at it. And a lot of athletes have, have a hard time making that sort of mental shift like, oh yeah, I'm going to be pretty crappy at this next thing for a while until I gain, get some experience and whatever it is. And so when I retired from competition and I was, I was, it was the last race I did was this event in Thailand and it was Olympic distance race. And I was packing my bike in the bike case. And I'm like, damn, you know what? I am really good at packing this frigging bike in this bike case. And I am never going to have to do it again. And so I went home and I'm like, okay, well, whatever's next, let's just expect to be kind of mediocre at it. And maybe I'll never be good at anything else again, but I was, I was prepared for that. And so it was, there was never a day that I looked back and thought, gee, I wish I'd done one more race. That's great. I mean, that kind of contentedness is uh, obviously a huge part of it and setting yourself up emotionally and mentally for to be prepared is obviously key to being successful and getting out at the right time. Well, after your career, uh, you know, uh, uh, participating at that level, you moved into coaching and it's remarkable that your coaching has been pretty much exclusively with age groupers. And it's, that's obviously a passion for you. And I'm curious, what was behind the decision not to focus on coaching pros? A number of things. Um, one, I, I love working with age groupers because usually um, even if they've been successful, there's only going to be maybe one or two little things that if you change it in their training, they're going to get even better. And if somebody's coming into the sport and they have no knowledge, it's very easy to just guide them and, and really see this progression happen. That's, you know, surprising to them, like, wow, I can actually do this, you know, thank you. And so it's super satisfying. Pros are, they can also be extremely satisfying to coach, but they can also be a pain in the ass, to be honest, you know, and I think part of it might just be because of who I am. Some of them who came to me asking for guidance, they were just hoping that some little bit of magic would rub off, you know, and, and that they could just keep doing the same stuff they've been doing and somehow get a different result. Well, <coughs> excuse me, a pro is already at about, <coughs> excuse me, about 98, 99% of their potential, right? And the thing that's going to 
give them that last little bit is probably something that they're going to have to change about either either their training or their diet or their lifestyle or their outlook to get that last little bit. But that little thing is probably the hardest thing for them to change. Otherwise, they would have already done it. And so um, some of the pros that I worked with were, were willing to just, hey, tell me what to do and how to do it. And I'm going to give it a try because I know that I haven't optimized my potential, but most of them were like, really? <laughs> I love that. I think it's a, yeah, it's a great insight. Uh, you're right. I mean, since I've been coaching as well, I've learned that very quickly is that age groupers are like sponges. They're really interested in learning what they can do differently and really interested to try new things. Uh, and myself as somebody who's been in the sport for as long as I have, and I've, I've attained success, I, I myself, am more refractory to taking on uh, different things. than I can only imagine for a pro, uh, like you said, it's going to take significantly more to get those marginal little gains. So mm -hmm. I could totally appreciate that. Um, when you look at, uh, your involvement in the sport for gosh, it's, uh, 30, 40 years at this point, what do you see as some of the biggest changes uh, that have led to athletes being able to succeed? Um, well, there's just so much more knowledge now that's out there, that's public, that is accessible. When I started competing, there were no triathlon coaches. The sport was new. You know, I started in 82. Ironman was four years old and there were really no triathlon coaches. There were, of course, Sim coaches, cycling coaches, running coaches. And I contacted all three of those when I first started uh, racing and said, what do I need to do to get ready for 2.4 mile swim, a marathon, 112 mile bike ride. And each one of those three would, they'd give me all this information. It's like, if I do what each one of them wants me to do, I will kill myself, you know, because it's not, it's not a swim, a bike and a run. It's a, it's a triathlon. And so it was a very different beast. And so, um, you know, myself, Dave Scott, Scott Tinley, Scott Molina, you name it. We were experimenting around on, on what's the right mix of training and speed and sleep and recovery and all this kind of stuff. And we made mistakes, guaranteed we made mistakes. But then I think we also really started to put together a template of, of how to really get optimize your performance in triathlons. <clears throat> all of that information now is so readily available through uh, you know, you, there are coaches, obviously, you know, my coaching, Mark Allen coaching has been going since about 2001. So, um, and I actually was sort of hand writing training plans starting in 1995, where, you know, it went on an Excel spreadsheet and you'd mail it to the person and then fax machines came. So they need fax them it. And, and now everything is delivered online. And I started Mark Allen coaching online in 2001 and went, that was at right at the bottom of a, one of the dot-com busts and people are like, why are, are you starting an online business, especially coaching? How can you coach somebody online? We made money the first year. And uh, since then, now, obviously everybody delivers everything online as far as coaches and coaching. And, but anyway, so information is so much greater now. Um, coaching availability is so much more accessible now. If you need an in-person coach, you can find that. If you like to sort of have somebody guiding you, but you don't need to be where your coach is, there's online coaching like I have. And uh, with all the devices now, it's super, super easy to monitor what's actually going on with your athletes. 
You know, I don't have to look in their eyes to see that they're tired because it shows up in their heart rate and their, in their power and their pace and, you know, consistency and training. And you can see all of that through uh, so many of the tools that, that I use and that other coaches use now. Yeah. And I mean, it really is a, um, a, pro- a profession. I, I, I mean, coaching just lends itself so well to an online kind of environment and uh, has really opened up, I think, uh, like you said, the, the access for athletes to, to, to pair themselves with a coach who, who really meets or matches up with their goals and matches up with their personality. And I think it's a, it's a fantastic uh, medium for for our sport. Um, I, I want to finish, uh, and just uh, for my listeners, Mark is actually going to uh, graciously do a segment that's going to be available uh, to my Patreon subscribers, in which we're going to have an extended conversation. Uh, so, for those of you who are subscribers to the podcast, you'll be able to hear that. But for uh, the uh, rest of the podcast segment, I do want to just ask you, Mark. Uh, how do you view the current health of the sport? Where do you see triathlon at right now, especially, you know, pandemic uh, year last year, obviously critical this year, things seem to be coming back, but now we're facing recurrent surge, unfortunately, thanks to this Delta variant. Uh, How do you sort of view the current health of triathlon right now? Well, I think everything has been a little bit on hold, like everything, you know, last year that, I didn't go to any, any races. I, I went to one race and it was in December, 2020. Um, it looked like, as you said, things were opening up, but now we're having surges again. So um, <clears throat> in general, the, the, the folks who do the sport are, are getting a little bit older. Um, that said, I, it, I have just now recently started to see a lot of young kids who are, are kind of getting into it the challenge for sort of getting those young folks in and really having them dedicate to triathlon is that, um, you know, they're, they're a generation that really likes to do a lot of different things. My son is one of those. He's 27. He's done, he, he actually qualified for Kona a couple of years ago. Um, he, he raced triathlons for a few years, but he's, he's swam, he's played water polo. He ran cross country. He, he surfs, he did triathlon. He's, he just climbed um, El Capitan this summer with two other guys, went straight up the nose of that thing, two nights, three days. And uh, so he, that's, that's his generation. Like he loves to do a lot of different things and it's not in his makeup to go, I want to dedicate my entire life to one thing and be just the badass. I want to do a bunch of stuff and I don't care if I'm the best. I just want to enjoy it. So anyway, that's a long way of saying, you know, this sport does require a certain amount of time of finance resources for the equipment. And uh, I think it's, it's a little bit harder for people to enter into the sport now than when I was competing. One of the reasons is that there are less Olympic distance races than there were when I was racing. You could find an Olympic distance race to do almost every weekend of the year if you wanted to. Nowadays, it's much harder to find those short distance events, which are the perfect entry point for somebody going, I want to see if I like a triathlon or not. You know, it's a, it's a big ask if you are, let's say a runner. And even if you run half marathons, marathons to just pitch up and do a half Ironman distance race or a full Ironman distance race. And so I think that's the one, the one element that um, has been lost in the mass participation of the sport is 
a really exciting Olympic distance series. When I competed, as you probably know, we had the USTS, United States Triathlon Series. And it was a series that went around to all the different re regions in the US. And everybody was excited to, if you were pro, to go to as many of those as you could. And if you were an age grouper, to do the one in your city. And uh, we don't have that type of short distance excitement for mass participation. And so somebody will get on that. You know, I've been talking with, my business partner, Scott Zagarino, who has been around the sport since his early days in the 80s also. And he's done a lot of organizing of events over the years and helped with organizing the ITU, tons of stuff. Anyway, uh, one of the ideas that we have been tossing around is to develop uh, some Olympic distance events in key places around the U.S., you know, be have me be associated with them and to really provide a, an opportunity for athletes to do the distance to enter into the sport with a low sort of low cost in terms of time that it takes to train for it, to get ready, to have a great experience. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great point. Uh, I've heard this before from other people as well. I mean, the success of Ironman has been unfortunately a little bit of its, um, to its detriment as well. Uh, a lot of people will go and be one and done. Uh, you know, the Ironman has become kind of a bucket list kind of thing where people do the Ironman and then that's it. They're done with triathlon. And I think that's really unfortunate. Um, I also think that Ironman has become, um, essentially de facto triathlon and uh, people don't recognize that there are shorter distances. We've seen a little bit of a re resurgence of local race organizers, certainly in the Colorado area, uh, where we're seeing a lot more sprint and Olympic distance offerings, uh, but nowhere near what I remember. I mean, like you said, it was like one, you know, every weekend there were more than one race available in terms of different distances. And I'd love to get back to that because I think, as you said, that's the draw to get people in and keep people involved. It's much less daunting than uh, seven point three or our full Ironman. And uh, I think the health of the sport would definitely benefit. And it would obviously benefit Ironman because the more people do the shorter distances, the more they get into it and want to do those longer distances. Uh, well, Mark, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. This is a really interesting conversation. And again, for my Patreon subscribers, uh, Mark is going to uh, stick around. We're going to have a little bit of an extended uh, discussion about the Ironmore, which we talked a little bit about earlier, as well as some other uh, insights on some of the potential or some of the rivalries uh, amongst some of the current stars of the sport today, as well as some other things. Mark Allen, thank you once again for joining me on the TriDoc podcast today. All right. Thanks for having me. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesch. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. If you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode or comments, or if you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode, please send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, I hope that you'll visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. 
This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDark Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, train hard, train healthy.